0: To all of you thank the lord for his goodness his grace um i need to address something very quickly before we get into our text this morning why have y'all been holding out on me all of you grandparents are holding out on what it's like to be a grandparent i'm telling you it's crazy i was like what is wrong with all you people <laughs> i was um we were very thankful for the lord's thank you brother we're very thankful for the lord's uh grace and his mercy and uh annie is doing well very thankful for that recovering well and uh appreciate those who have prayed for them and um i was telling someone all ago i said you know you hear in you know, all your life especially as a parent you hear about oh just wait till your grandparent and you're like yeah 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 well it's yeah yeah it's true <laughs> and so uh anyway i told garrett i said i'm smitten man uh I'm done. I'm, it's over. It's just one of those things. Anyway, good to see each of you this morning. We're going to look in Colossians chapter 3, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, we will not deal with the entirety of this portion of the text, but we are trying to progress through this third chapter, and we've been here for several weeks now. But we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all, these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace that you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray as we've gathered here this day that our hearts and minds, our attention may be focused on you. Lord, you have called us out unto yourself and we are a grateful people for this cause. And as well, we recognize that you are holy. You are set apart unto yourself. There is none beside you. You are God and you are God alone. And you have exalted Christ, our Savior, at your very right hand. And Lord, we know that your word commands us to worship you, to bow humbly before you, and you've given us this privilege to do so as your people who've been redeemed by your grace, they've been called unto righteousness. So Father, may you give us that grace and understanding and discernment of the working of your spirit that we might do just that, that we might recognize your goodness, that we might recognize our unworthiness, and that we might therefore submit ourselves to you, Lord, each and every moment of our lives. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its truth as it points us to Christ, as it reveals the truth of the person and work of our neighbor. We pray that we might have understanding hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive of your truth. Illuminate us to the revealed truth of Christ from your word this morning, we pray. And Lord, there are many no doubt with burdens here today, many with concerns. We may not even be aware of and we just ask father that you might minister grace to each and every one for those who are away from us we pray you might bring them back safely thank you for answered prayer and bringing some back already but lord we pray that you might be with those who are unable to meet with us this day thank you for every soul that's gathered in this place we just ask again that our hearts our minds our attention would be consumed with christ and give us wisdom as you teach us from your word we pray in jesus name amen thank you and be seated Within this third chapter of this epistle, Paul exhorts the reader to practically live out the truth of the doctrine. And doctrine means teaching or instruction. So when we speak of doctrine, we speak of many doctrines, if you will, false doctrine, which is really false teaching. And so in this particular passage in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul exhorts the reader to practically live out the truth of the doctrine or teaching which he had explained in the previous portions of this epistle. Now, while we obviously do not have time to go and review the first two chapters up to this point in our study, we do recognize that it was Paul's style to first address doctrines or teaching and then exhort the reader to apply themselves to that truth. We see this throughout many of his epistles, such as Ephesians and so on. And we see where he'll lay out these doctrines, these foundations, and instructing the church on the truth of the position that God has granted us and provided us in the person of Christ. And then he instructs on how to live out that truth, the, the dangers, the warnings of the, the trip falls, dangers and warnings of the things that could cause us to stumble, and also the instruction to refrain from doing such. And so Paul does this. This is somewhat of his signature style in his epistles. Regarding Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, We're aware that the Gnostics, which were infiltrating the first century church with their false teaching, that it was through some mystical knowledge that men attained a relationship with God, and and this teaching subsequently marginalized the necessity for God to manifest the Son in the flesh. So, again, Gnosticism is broad in its definition, and it's difficult to nail down. I told you early on in the study that it was well... This is not original by any means, but I read where someone had stated that to define Gnosticism is like attempting to nail down a floppy fish. So we do know one of the the major teachings of Gnosticism, of course, was this idea of this mystical uh, knowledge that would lead someone to a relationship or understanding of God. And if you think about the ramifications of that, and this is what Paul is refuting throughout this letter, obviously, you see that the ramifications of such false teaching would be that there would be no need for God to manifest his son in the flesh because there's no need for a manifestation of God in the flesh for man to know God. God can know man through some mystical not through Jesus being sent in the incarnation and suffering and dying and then raising again for our our uh, for our justification, that none of this would be necessary because obviously you can mystically know God. And by the way, that that mentality, though it may take different shapes and forms, if you will, today, that mentality, greatly exists today among among those within the church there's this idea that we can know god some way that men can maintain this relationship with god apart from the lord jesus christ which is heresy absolutely jesus himself said as you're aware john 14 6 of course i am the way the truth the life no man cometh unto the father but by me and so it took the physical manifestation and and that's what paul is dealing with in colossians if you recall that he is the image that Jesus in Colossians chapter one, I believe it is, where he states that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Christ literally came in the flesh, representing God in the flesh, because he is the Son of God, and that he manifested him such because that's what was necessary. Remember, the flesh is the problem, and it took flesh to answer that problem, but it took a sinless flesh, which is the flesh of Christ, in order for that problem to be resolved. And so the problem man has is to this flesh. In which we live, the sinful nature that that is with us in this body in which we live. Paul's response to the Gnosticism, which was plaguing the church, and I'm summarizing so understand that or to this, and we've dealt with that through months of study in Colossians 1 and 2. But Paul's response to the Gnosticism, which was plaguing the church, was to first emphasize that Jesus is not only the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one but that Jesus is the very image of the Father and that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in the flesh, making him, making Jesus preeminent. Chapter one, verse 15 says, who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Then verses 17 through 19 of chapter one state, and he, Jesus, is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he Jesus, might have the preeminence for it pleased the Father that in him Jesus should all fullness dwell and so here we're being told of the preeminence of Christ and the preeminence of Christ many people I think really misunderstand this and they almost make it as though this is simply saying and only exclusively saying that Jesus is to be first. well first of all, it doesn't say Jesus is to be that anyway it says that he is preeminent, that God has made him this. So it's not something, again, that we make him. It's that which we recognize about him. But it's not only that of being first. It's the fact that he is Lord. Christ is made Lord by God the Father, declared to be such. Remember, we know in Philippians, the scripture tells us, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father has declared him to be this. Again, we don't make him this. You don't make him Savior. You don't make him Lord any more than you make him Creator. It's who he is and who God has declared him to be. And so it's imperative that we understand, that we recognize this, lest we fall into that same snare. Second, Paul refuted the the Gnostic, Gnostic beliefs or Gnosticism by explaining it is only through the preeminent Christ that we can be complete, that we can be reconciled to God, we can be uh, that the sin problem can be rectified and resolved, and that we can have their relationship. Remember what Paul is saying, you must understand the cultural context. The Gnostics, Gnostics are coming in saying, again, mystical relationship, all matter is evil, therefore Jesus could not have been God in the flesh because he was sinful had he been God in the flesh. Because all matter is evil and flesh is matter, therefore flesh is evil. Now we know we have a wicked, fleshly, sinful nature. We know that. But Christ did not. And so they were refuting the need for Christ or that this is truly the Son of God in the flesh. This is the problem. So Paul refutes that by, by declaring, of course, he is the very image of God the Father. Christ is the Godhead in the flesh and he is the anointed one, the Messiah. But then too, he explains that it is only through Christ that we can be complete, that we can be reconciled to God the Father. Chapter two, verses nine and 10 of Colossians. <clears throat> Excuse me. For in him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. Ye are fulfilled in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, I believe it is necessary to provide somewhat extensive review this morning as we progress through the study. As you know, I always provide somewhat of a review just to help us to understand contextually where we are in the the scriptures which we are dealing with. However, I believe it may be necessary to be a little more extensive in that this morning due to the relationship existing between the two exhortations Paul provides in this portion of the text. As we examined last week, Paul exhorts the Colossian believers to both put off and to put on. And these exhortations within this chapter are the expected results. And again, when I say expected, I don't mean it exactly in the same framework which we may use that term ourselves. We think of an expectation as something that we would hope to be, but yet it may not necessarily be. Well, when I say expected from this perspective, I'm saying these are the demanded results of one who is truly a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I say demanded results, meaning it will be accomplished. Again, I allude to this as I have many times through the study, but 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's no ifs, ands, buts, or hopes, so's here. And if any man be in Christ, he should be a new creature. No, if any man be in Christ, he should act like a new creature. No, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and verse 18 again, and all things are of God. And so when you understand that truth, when we speak of expectation here, the expected result, I don't mean it, again, from the the same uh, perspective that we may commonly use the term, because we think of something that we should be, that hopefully will be, but Scripture teaches us that this will be, if a man is truly in Christ, if he's truly born again. And so these exhortations Paul provides are the expected, demanded results of a person who has identified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul explains this when he says, if ye then be risen with Christ, in verse 1 of this chapter, seek those things which are above. And Paul exhorted the Colossian believers here to be intentional regarding their desires. When he says seek those things which are above, he's speaking of the desire within. And he's saying that you are to be intentional as one who's been born again if you are dead and buried with Christ. You are raised in his resurrection. And if this be true, then you are to be intentional about the desires that you allow to even exist. Because you still have the sinful nature that is present. So you are to be living as one who has risen with Christ, allowing Christ and his life to live through you. But you cannot be living in the truth of the resurrected life of Christ while you are also attempting or allowing the old man to up within you as well. And so Paul is saying, be intentional concerning the desires. Second, he said, if you then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above too. Now Paul exhorted the Colossian believers to be intentional regarding also their focus and what they allowed to consume their thoughts and hearts. So he says, set your affection. So it's not, not only about the desires in the sense of what we allow or what we, what we hunger for, if you will, but now we are called to set your affection again, that this is intentional that this is to be something guarded, and that which consumes our thoughts and hearts should be something we are mindful of. Third, if you then be risen with Christ, mortify your members. Verses four through seven, Paul exhorted the Colossian believers to put to death, mortify, put to death. So he's saying, put to death their members, which is to say, put to death every part of your sinful flesh. Now we're already crucified with Christ. Again, it's a positional truth. Again, in. in Galatians 2.20, Paul, as you're very familiar with the passage, said, I am crucified, past tense, with Christ. Nevertheless, I present tense live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in that statement, Paul goes on to say, I do not frustrate, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul is not saying here, oh, we do good or don't do bad so that we can attain righteousness. No, he's saying the righteousness comes by Jesus Christ. But I must acknowledge and recognize as a believer in Christ that I am crucified. This old man is dead. Now that is a positional truth. How do we know that to be so? Well, further in Romans 7, you know that Paul states, That's the great chapter of contention, if you will, where Paul is saying that those things I would do, I don't do, those things I don't want to do, those are the things I do, and this has to do with this contention that is present between the spirit and the sinful flesh, the body in which we still reside that has this sinful nature. That's what's being referenced. Again, Galatians 5, Paul says also that, uh, very much so, uh, related a parallel to what he says in Romans seven, that the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, they are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. And so here Paul again is saying that that the flesh lusteth, meaning the flesh desires the sinful nature, not the body, but the sinful nature of man desires to claim rights to the body, which it has no claim, rightful claim to. And so he's saying there's a constant conflict, position Sanctified, positionally justified, positionally redeemed, positionally glorified. All these are done, positionally speaking. But practically, this is still being realized within the child's life. This is something we are realizing. But if one is positionally sanctified, then obviously that's going to be evident as one is walking with God, as one is following after Christ. There's going to be an outward manifestation of this. Hence, the scriptures are saying here put to death your members, Paul states. In other words, we are to not allow the deeds of that old man to rise up within us. Paul explained this in his epistle to the churches of Galatia even further in Galatians 5, 24 and 25 when he said, and they that are Christ's, notice again, doesn't say they should do this or they, this is what we would expect to be or this is what we would hope to be, but listen to what he says. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts if we live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit paul explains he summarizes this whole statement here in galatians 5 24 and 25 if you are christ then you have crucified the flesh that simple flesh is crucified it's already been crucified with him but if this be true that the flesh with its affections and lusts, the sinful desires and simple nature of that flesh is crucified with christ If that is true, if you live in the Spirit, which is the resurrected life of Christ in you, then also walk in the Spirit. If Christ is your life, if Christ is the very substance of your life, if he is the origin of your life, then live accordingly. That's what Paul is saying. He even says it in Colossians when he says, as ye have therefore received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him. And so the fact of the matter is we are to live according to the grace that we have received, according to the power of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And this is a command for us to be attentive and intentional. Here's the point. I think a great way to summarize this for you this morning is to simply say this. God is intentional and has promised and committed and faithful to perform this work in you if you are a believer in Christ. He will conform you. We'll look at this in a moment, but he will conform you to the image of Christ. And this process in which we are being conformed to the image of Christ, being renewed in that image, can be one of two ways for the child of God. It can either be a joyful and pleasant experience, or it can be a sorrowful and grief, grieving experience. <laughs> Meaning, if we are resistant as the people of God, God's still going to do the work either way but you will not experience the joy of him doing that work as you would being one who is submitted to him doing the work. And so the work is going to be accomplished. This is God's, God's commitment to do this. But we, for, are called to submit to his work of this conforming us to the image of his son, in which there is great joy in that process, even though there may be moments where it is... It is sorrowful in the work that's being done, or the work may be painful as it is being accomplished, there is still a great joy in knowing that what God is doing is to His glory and purpose redemptively, that He is sanctifying us and, and He is consecrating us to Himself. So there is a, a joy that is associated therein. I want to remind you, it is important for us to recognize these commands that are given to both put off and to put on are based on the position believers had already put off the old man and put on the new man and, and i don't have time to get into that but if you look at the order in which this is given first paul deals with putting off this this old man with the deeds and such and then he speaks about putting on having put on the new man so he begins by saying putting off the deeds seeing you have put off the old man then he says having put on uh, put on the new man then you're to put on the new man with that so this is, again a positional truth that demands a practical response And that's what we have to understand. This is not men attempting to do something in which that's not been done within them. We dealt with this somewhat last week, and we'll we'll look a little more into that as we consider this first point of putting off that Paul addresses here. Having been crucified with Christ and now risen with him, the natural order of Paul's temptations are to first put off, as we saw last week, the old man which is fashioned after Adam, and then to put on the new man which is fashioned after Christ, or the second Adam, or the last Adam. So Paul begins by saying, put off. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. But now ye also put off all of these. Now he doesn't put off the old man, but he says put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Here it is. All these things put off. You're responsible put these things off, seeing you have put off the old man. When Paul exhorts the church to put off the actions or the deeds or the works of the old man, he is declaring that this expectation is as natural for the believer as it would be to put off or to cast off the clothes or garments that are filthy. And as I mentioned last week, one would not normally put on filthy clothes having just washed themselves from the daily activities that resulted in the clothes becoming dirty. In other words, let me put it into a different perspective, maybe. Because we are not simply clothing ourselves, but we are clothed by God in in the right of Christ. It's been imputed unto us. And think of this for a moment. If we have been washed, and we have been cleansed, and we have been born again as God's children, then it would make no sense for us to put these things back on the filth of the flesh and the 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 garments of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, as it would for us to think that we are going to put our children after we've cleansed, cleaned them, bathed them, washed them, back into dirty filthy soiled garments why would we do such a thing it just doesn't even make sense but yet people think it's just fine as believers or professing believers for someone to claim to be cleansed for someone to claim to be redeemed and yet just go right back to living like they did right back to the sinfulness of the flesh now and i say to you the only time that would be even considered acceptable or or something that would be common practice would be if the one that was being dressed or the one dressing themselves had no other provision than the filth they just took off. And so it is within the lives of those who profess to know Christ. The only time that someone would think it even acceptable to go back to the wickedness of the flesh and their ways as someone professing to know Christ is if there had been no provision made for them other than the filth they just tried to strip away from themselves. But that's not the case for us. God has provided for us the righteousness of Christ. Why would we ever go back to the filth and wickedness of the flesh when we've been given the righteousness of Jesus and the ability and capability, power to live therein? Paul says, remove, put off as you would filthy garments, anger, wrath, uh, wrath, indignation, malice, wickedness, Blasphemy, slander, filthy communication, abusive language, and lies, of course, telling lies. He said, Put off, put away the filthy garments of the flesh. It is as unnatural for the believer to put back on the deeds of the flesh as it would be for someone, again, who has washed themselves and put on the filthy clothes they had removed when there are new or clean clothes available in which one can be, or one can have or put on. So this morning I want to lay some foundation for our continued study of this chapter. While well, it would be simple to rush through these verses, and it would be, it'd be easy just to, to highlight, hit the high marks and just move right along, I believe it's, in, it's necessary to lay some, some foundation here as we continue to work through this chapter. And while, while it, we need to consider the, the depth of the truths that Paul proclaimed, concerning the responsibility that we have to put on the new man. Once one has been cleansed from the filth of their sin, putting off The old man having been washed, having been cleansed by the provision God made for us in Christ. The flesh being cleansed from the flesh with its sinful deeds. We must recognize that God has also made provision for us to live in the righteousness of his I allude back to something Jesus said during his ministry. I believe it's in Matthew's gospel in which the Lord gave the example of the woman who had the, the house that was filled with a demon. Do you remember that? And she cleaned the house out and swept it out and got rid of the demon. And then she had this empty house. And the scripture goes on to say that more demons, came, evil spirits, came into the house after she had cleaned the house, more came in. But there's a reason more came in, because it was an empty house. And the same is true here concerning the garments. One can simply attempt to strip off the fleshly deeds and sinful acts. And people will applaud and look and say, oh, it's wonderful. Look how they're following after the Lord. But listen, if they are... Within, then it's only going to result in more sinful acts and deeds in the end and condemnation. But when one has the righteousness of Christ imputed unto them, then they are filled with the Spirit of God. They possess the Spirit of Christ, which means that they are now not under that bondage and in that threat of being going just simply returning back to that which they claim to have turned from. And so I believe it it is imperative that we are aware of the provision God has made for us to live in the righteousness of His Son. In other words, the Lord has not only cleansed us from the filth of the flesh, which we are to put off those deeds, but He's also clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we are to put on. Revelation 19, 6-8 We read, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The righteousness of the saints is that which was given to the bride of Christ. Such righteousness does not originate from men, but it is imputed unto us, God, through Christ. Philippians 3, 7-10 we read. But what things, Paul says, were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency or for the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now again, when Paul says I have suffered, it does not mean he's groaning and moaning, complaining about what he has. He's let go for the sake of Christ. He literally the word here literally means forfeited. That I I willingly forfeit the loss of all things. He says, and I do count them but dung or refuse, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. These verses, they they explain the responsibility we have as followers of Christ to put on or to appropriate God's provision of righteousness for us in Christ. Paul begins the exhortation to put on that which pertains to the new man by first reminding us of the basis for which we are not only responsible but also again made capable to put on such righteousness look at verses 10 and 11 now with me when paul says to put on and have put on the new man now notice the distinction here in the previous passages where paul says put he does not say put off simply the old man in fact let's go back just a few verses and see what he actually says here he says in verse 8 But now ye also put off all things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So as one who already has been redeemed, Paul is saying, now put off the old man, he's saying no, this is already done, that's the positional part, seeing ye have put off the old man, it's already done, we're already crucified with Christ, then there are these Remnants of that old nature that still exist, and Paul is saying, put them off. But notice the transition between that and this. When Paul says in verse ten, "and have put on the new man," so before he starts saying now, now start this. He says, "Recognize the old man's been put off, and the new man has already been put on." So again, Paul's call to the church at Colossae to these believers is that they will the truth of God's provision already made for them in Jesus Christ. And this is of tremendous significance. We are to live according to the grace. Listen, I I, I don't know how I can communicate this any more effectively, but the simple truth is there is evidence, as Paul provides for us here in this chapter I've mentioned previously, to a genuine believer in Christ. There is evidence in the life of one who's been redeemed. And there is a demanded response that is going to be present. And so Paul is emphasizing that again when he says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. What a statement. I hope you're listening to what you're reading or reading it intently and paying attention. He says, and have put on the new man, listen to the statement, which is renewed in knowledge. What is the whole problem here? What What are the Gnostics dealing with? comes from the word gnosis which is knowledge and or to know and here he's saying that this new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him where there's neither Greek nor Jew circumcision nor uncircumcision barbarian Scythian bond nor free but Christ is all and in all now when he says Christ is in all of course this is not Exclusive statement saying that the spirit of Christ dwells in every man. He's saying no. Whether it's Greek or Jew, whether it's circumcision or uncircumcision, Jew or Gentile, whether it's barbarian, Scythian, we'll look at these meanings in a moment, bond nor free, whether one is enslaved or free, but Christ is in all. So it doesn't make a difference. In other words, all these distinctions are eradicated in this new man. That's the point Paul is making. The syntax of verse 10 the grammatical structure of this verse has significance in a proper understanding of the truth that Paul's teaching. He says, have put on, and this is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which speaks of a historical act, while the statement which is renewed is in the present tense, tense which implies a continuous act. So again, here you have that positional and the progressive practical reality of that positional. Even the very grammar that is used in these tenses Help us to understand that truth, that this is something that has already been done and then something that is continually being done. And so when he says, and have put on the new man, that's in the aorist tense, again, that's something that's complete, it's done. But then the statement which is renewed in the present tense is that of continual action that is taking place. When he goes on to say, which is renewed, or we could say, which is being renewed, It's something that is continually taking place, something that is progressively happening. In other words, Spence Jones commented along these lines. He said, notions are combined of a new birth taking place once for all and a new character in course of formation. And that, I believe, is a great summarization of what Paul is saying. In other words, he's saying, again, this positional truth, there is a new birth, there is a new life. We are a new man. We are a new creature. That's what he's saying. However, the, the revelation of the character of that new man is continually, progressively being revealed as we walk with the Lord. Let me say it to you like this. Okay? I'm just going to really simplify this and sum it up for you. If you claim that you have came to faith in Christ 10 years ago and you are no different in the way you think, in what you say, in what you do, or your desire for righteousness is no different than it was 10 years ago, then you are not a new creature in Christ. That's the bottom line. If you are the same, then that means there's no progressive revelation of our manifestation because there is no positional truth in which you are rooted and grounded of redemption in christ and that is important for all of us. all even tells us does he not or the new testament tells us that we are to examine ourselves to see that we be in the faith this is a continual thing we are to examine again there is any moment in my life potentially um that you could look at me and go how could that man know the lord i've said it before if you don't believe me ask my wife he would testify to that you could look at my life at any given moment, and it doesn't mean that that of my life is going to portray the life of Christ, because I still deal with this sinful flesh. But hear me, if that is how I am known, then it's because the life of Christ is not in me. And the same is true for you. Paul uses the same language in his epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 22-24, he says that ye put off Concerning the former conversation of the old man, that's that lifestyle of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And verse 23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is the new man, renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The question that must be answered, very simple question, If this is talking about really sanctification because it is, then the question is, what is sanctification? And as I've often mentioned, the term sanctification is often misunderstood. Many seem to believe that sanctification primarily refers to a separation from sin. Again, I told you, you can put things off having never put on the new man. You can put off certain deeds of that old flesh, of that old man. In other words, potentially speaking, Potentially, any man can quit any sin. Potentially. But he cannot live in righteousness, even if he puts sins off. Because just to put sin off is not sanctification. And people think of sanctification as merely meaning to be separated from sin. But think of this for a moment. If you're separated from sin... If you're separated from something, then you are also separated unto something. And so, this work of sanctification is not merely being set apart from sin. And the importance and significance of the work of sanctification is not that we are separated alone from sin, but rather unto who and what we are separated. We are not simply set free from sin, but we are set free unto righteousness. Again, Romans 6, I'm going to read some verses here, so just bear with me. But Romans 6, 11 through 18. Paul says, Likewise, reckon ye yourse- also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign. Here it is. You're dead to sin, alive in Christ. Then he commands the reader, Let not sin therefore reign. Can an unbeliever not allow sin to reign in their lives? No. But a believer can. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Look, this is a phenomenal passage of Scripture for you to understand, that you need to understand. Because again, while many people say, Oh, I'm set free. Sin, I'm set free from sin. Again, anyone can stop certain sins potentially, but the one thing that the unbeliever, the unregenerate man, can never do is live in righteousness. So, being free and being sanctified is not just God got rid of all my old past and all my old sin. No, He has delivered us and enabled us by the presence of His Spirit within us, now setting us free to live righteously, which is something we could never do as an unbeliever let's look deeper into verses 10 11 he goes on to say put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him where there is neither Greek nor jew circumcision nor uncircumcision barbarian scythian bond nor free but christ is all and in all the new man is a renewed man a man renewed in true spiritual knowledge of god contrasted to the mystical knowledge proposed by the gnostics again the knowledge by which you can know god attain a relationship with god here here paul is saying wait a minute He's saying, no, this new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is true knowledge after God. The new man is this renewed man. Paul previously explained this genuine spiritual knowledge. Chapter 1, 9 and 10, he says, for this cause of Colossians, we also since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Chapter 127, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery which is among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the gospel to the Gentiles, this mystery, this knowledge of God. Chapter 2, 2, and 3, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul further explains that the renewed man is after the image of the one who created him, and this, of course, refers back to the creation of mankind. If you look in Genesis 1, uh, 2, and, and you'll see where, where the Scripture says, and God said, let us make man in our, I'm sorry, twenty six chapter 1, 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. And God said, let us make man in our, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. We see here that sin obviously polluted us after Adam sinned in the garden. We're aware of that. And because of sin, we are now a marred image of God. Every... Every person is an image of God, but they are marred images of God. We all are. However, by God's provision in Christ, we are made, we are renewed, we are reformed after the image of the one who has not only created us, but recreated us. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called... Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Again, these are all past tense here. It's something that's already done positionally. Sin resulted in us becoming a marred image of our God, yet Christ has recreated us and all the division and the distinctions caused by sin. Look again at verses 10 and 11. He says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now look at verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So let me break this down for you what Paul is saying. He's saying there's neither Greek or Jew. That speaks of a cultural difference resulting in enmity and hatred. Remember, the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek, there was hatred that existed between them. Then you have circumcision and uncircumcision. This deals with spiritual differences and the division between these two groups. Then you have barbarian Scythian. Now these aren't contrasted with one another, but mentioned together. And barbarians were really simply foreigners. People who were foreign were considered to be barbaric. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily crude people per se, necessarily, but they were considered barbaric by uh, the means that they were foreign to the culture with which they were interacting. And so this deals with foreigners, but then Scythians refers to the most barbaric foreigners, or the most the crudest of those. Then he says bond and free. There's neither bond nor free. So this deals with societal differences or statuses or divisions. And here's what Paul is driving home. He's saying the renewed man in Christ, this new man, knows nothing of such divisions and differences. Here's what sin did. Sin separated us from God, did it not? And sin also separates us from one another. But here's what Christ does. The new man... Unity, where sin brought division. And there is no distinction. There is no difference. In Christ, we are made complete. We are fulfilled. And it is Christ who is all and in all of those who are redeemed. For those who are redeemed, for for those who have the new man, Christ is everything. And it is Christ who is in us. It is in Jesus Christ that we've been made the children of God. It is Christ and in Christ. In which there is no spiritual hierarchy, there is no division, there is no hatred, there is no enmity, and there is no social status. Christ is our identity. This is what Paul is saying. If ye then be risen with Christ. If you are identified with Christ, then you recognize that you have been crucified with him, buried with him, now risen with him. And Christ is everything. And that's what Paul is saying. And if Christ is truly all and in us who are believers, he is in all of believers, then we have no division or should not allow any division to be present because Christ brings unity and makes right all that sin has made wrong. The old man is marred by sin. The new man is conformed after the image of Christ, the creator, the one who created us. We are marked by Adam. We are. All of us are marked by Adam, but those who are redeemed now bear the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the second Adam. Because we are renewed by Christ and are a new man, we are also to live accordingly, as Paul exhorts in verses 12 through 14, which we won't read. So we must understand what Paul is saying. He says, put off the old man and his deeds, because we have put on the new man, those who have been recreated in the image of Christ. For it is Christ who is all and in all those who have been crucified with him in his death and raised with him in his resurrection. To put on, and all that Paul will deal with and follows this passage, to put on is not for someone tempt, present themselves in what they deem to be an acceptable or in what they deem to be an acceptable manner. To put on is to remain, for the, to make certain that that old man remains crucified and that he's not rising up within us. To be attentive to this, to be conscious of this, to be aware of this, that the life of Christ might be magnified through us. For it is Christ who is life. Stand with me, if you would, as we pray together. Father, we thank you